I want to thank my sponsor, Viva. Viva, thank you so much for making this show possible. Viva is here to change the game. They have electronic regulatory documents for sites for free with no commitment, no contract. I just signed up my site, Yuma Clinical Trials. No contract needed, nothing signed. They they just approve your email address and that's it. You're up and running with an electronic regulatory system, which is a great way if you haven't gotten into electronic anything yet. You need to consider it. It's it's free. Over 450 sponsors are using Viva for their backend stuff. Electronic signatures here, electronic uh, delegation of authorities log, all for free. Viva is going to keep giving sites free stuff because they're very site centric. They they know that if they help empower the sites, even more sponsors are going to use their paid products on their end. They are the sponsors after all, so they pay for things. And they understand that making sites take control of their electronic systems is a huge first step. It's a huge commitment for sites, even for something that's free. And they're here to make it easy, and they're playing the long game. And anyways, go check it out underneath the video or the show notes below. Viva Site Vault. All right, Guru Nation, we're live. Uh, producer, cut the music. See, it's good to have producers working for you in the background. Uh, Dr. Goldman, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, look, like, subscribe, comment, share. If you're watching or listening to this later, um, thank you. Make sure you do the same. 2023, it's super busy. There's studies like every week I'm getting something new, Robert. Um, For those that don't know, Robert Goldman, he's the director of clinical operations for a sponsor. He has a long history of working at CROs and also as a consultant for sponsors and He's been doing this for multiple decades now, two decades, uh, right? Going on Close three, to, not, yeah. not three. No, yet. no, it's, it's, it's been about less than, less than two, actually 13 years. Oh, okay. Okay. Thir- yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so but he's been doing this for a while, guys. If you have more than six months of experience, you're a veteran is what I tell the coordinators at the office. But, uh, Robert Goldman, he's actually, um, He's a doctor. He's an MD. He's got um, he he's not licensed in the U.S., but he he got his uh, medical uh, education overseas in in the Caribbean. Like a lot of people that um, I used to go to college with, uh, they went the same route. Whether they're now pharmacists or MDs, Robert's clinical. He's a director of ClinOps for multiple sponsors right now, with one in particular. Um, it is the golden age of research, and we thought, you know what? What better time to discuss sites and sponsors? And if if we may get Dr. Hazen joining us later to discuss the cost of clinical research, and she's unique in the sense that she's sponsor and site. But Robert, thank you so much, man. No, it's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for always, as always, having me. It's always fun, and uh, people are expecting you and I to, to spar during this during this podcast based on the infograph. You gotta uh, so, get people to come in, you know. That's one. Thing I was gonna, I, I was gonna bring my boxing gloves out and kind of, you know, just see if we want. People are Noah. looking for the for a fight. Yeah, <laughs> they they really are. They're looking for the drama. So, um, well, they're not gonna get first, one. They're not. Not with you and I here. We're, we speak <laughs> the same language, advocate for one another, 
and um it, it's great to be here first one of 2023 man so thanks as always yeah man um brandon says golden age of clinical research sites clara says sites at the center of research i know this is something that this is like a catchphrase that came up in one of my viva sponsored uh episodes and it's so true like maybe we start there you know somebody that works at a sponsor used to work at a zero now you work at sponsors and i think you're never looking back right like you like where sponsors and that's that's where you're gonna be yeah absolutely absolutely could i could never go back to the zero um you know i i spent over a decade on the zero side you know and so now that i'm on the sponsor side it's, it'd be a hard transition going back, but at the same time, you know, I have site level experience as well and I, I empathize and that's why I've joined, um, certain organizations, you know, to, to bolster their mission. You know, CRPN is, is one of them. I'm on the advisory board. So I encourage everybody to check out, um, you know, what, what the mission is over there. But again, you know, super big advocate for sites, um, always understanding that they are, the front lines, you know, they're critical and everything. They always will be. I don't think you'll ever negate the the brick and mortar, you know, that that doctor patient relationship, that trust factor, you know, video calls are great, Dan. But when you and I were together in person, you know, chatting, it, it's it's a whole nother it's a whole nother vibe. So yep. um, you know, that that's where I'm at with it. But site sites are are where it's at. So definitely agree with Claire's comment. And don't you think, I mean, this is not going to be a episode to bash on CROs, but I think we should start with there. Um, tech, one of the theories I have is that tech, Viva leading the way, but there's others, like real tech companies that are here to stay, not these fly-by-night DCT companies that are already laying off people, Um but like real tech companies like eSource, eReg that are actually empowering sites, they're here to stay. Do you think that we're going to enter an era where sponsors can more effectively control, take back control of their studies? Because for, for the last few decades, they've been leaving it to the CROs and they kind of had their head in the sand like, hey, we don't know what's happening. The CROs managing this. And now that tech is here, you know, and it's actually good and sites more and more are actually starting to use it. Do you think it's empowering not just sites, but sponsors as well? You know, Dan, so let's address the question in a couple in a couple of manners. So first of all, I don't like the word control. OK, I really don't because it's a collaborative effort. And if it's not, it should be. Um, sites should never feel as if sponsors have control over their path their their choice in tech their structure their sops who they assign to the studies huge advocate of sites making those educated decisions because ultimately the buck stops with the pi anyway so in, in, in what i what i want to say though is sponsors have to empower sites and be the change that we want to see cro's make money wasting time and being lazy it's the honest truth, right? And that's something we can talk with Dr. Hazen when when she comes into the into the show. But you know, this is exactly why they don't want us to force tech upon them. So I, I've been doing some some work with some other, you know, advising some tech companies in the startup space um, that want to break into the industry. 
And one of the big themes I always, they, they taught me was something called dog fooding. And you were part of that conversation, actually, um, if you remember that term. And, yeah. you know, it's essentially that, right? We as sponsors, and I encourage all my sponsor friends who are watching this video, we have to find the tech that you described, Dan, the stuff that works good. It's not too intimidating. It's user-friendly. It's actually good value add to your organization. And we as sponsors have to adopt this tech. And in a sense, not using control, but but working alongside the site, showing them the value prop, saying, hey, here's why we should use this platform. It's going to make your life easier. It's going to free up your CRCs. You're going to be able to see more patients. You're going to be able to focus your time on seeing the subjects, the patients, making sure that they're happy, their experience is what it should be. That's going to encourage the site to say, you know what? All right, I'll keep an open mind, right? Single sign-on one single sign-on username and password for all of your study portals not 15 different individual ones right a single dashboard using ai to extrapolate data points um you know uploading documents a single time getting a single notification when one of them is expired sending pre-populated reg docs to your site streamlining the process right that's and, viva right there sending yeah. the doc straight to the tmfs Absolutely. And, but, but at the end of the day, what's Viva, what's, what's everybody's mission, right? Easing the burden of all of the paper trails and all of this stuff to do. So circling back to that whole question, it's, it's critical that sponsors take the driver's seat here, right? Cause CROs are not going to implement this on their own. They're just not going to. And you know, it's quite honestly, the big five, I think everybody and your viewers know who the who the big five are, they're going to flat right just say no. And that's why I'm a big, you know, and you've said this, Dan, small is the new big, right? Yeah. That's why I like to, pref I prefer to work with the mid-sized to small boutique CROs, you know, who, who are open to this change because the big, the big guys, they're just going to tell you, you know what? No, they can afford to walk away from startup biotechs. They don't need our business. Whereas the mid-size, small, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, like, as far as the CROs are concerned, the big five, as, as you say, and as everybody knows who they are, do you think they're, the incentive structure for them has gotten so far out of whack to where they just don't care, like, if a study ends on time, if it enrolls on time? Like, do you think the incentives need to be realigned and if we can remember our history, you know, I wasn't in this industry when Ikevia was founded, but from what I understand, Dr. Gillings, who founded Ikevia, which really he invented the CRO, the concept of a CRO, in the beginning, he was taking a profit share in the sponsors, like he was doing royalties. And there's now a bunch of companies, tech vendors, CROs, there's a guy called Royalty Pharma, he founded a... Um, this tech platform for companies, he, he goes off of like mainly royalties. So it's, it's like, Hey, we'll, we'll let you use our tools. We just want something um, as far as the profits are concerned, if you're successful. And I think we've come so far away from that to where these CROs are now publicly traded companies. There's nothing wrong with that either, but their incentives are not aligned necessarily with, um, sponsors and i think actually sites 
sponsors incentives are closer aligned to each other than Sierra's. I don't know. What are your what's your take on this? Because you're actually at the sponsor level. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. The big five, they have no skin in the game. You know, obviously if you have a five hundred million dollar portfolio or bigger, they might have an incentive at a much higher level to deliver customer satisfaction, right? So that they can win continuing business. But you know, the big pharma companies, you know, not to call them out, they're not going to the mid-sized, small boutique CROs. They're pivoting right back to the big guys. I mean, that's just the knee-jerk reflex that they do. And so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they don't, you know, but then again, Dan, it's, it's kind of a, those big pharmas, they can afford to lose a hundred million. You know, it's not, if, if the, if the trial fails, yeah, it's a bummer for the day, but they move on. Well, not you know, only that, they can afford the A team, so they basically sign a deal with the big CRO, you name it, whatever three letters you want or five exactly. letters CRO you want, <laughs> and they say, "Look, we know you guys are busy. We want exclusive deal." So they call mm-hmm. this what the uh, fu- fu- FSP, FSP or something like yep. that. Exactly. FSP, your CRAs that we handpick from your team, so we're picking the best ones. They're not to work on anything else but our studies. Fully dedicated. And then yep. CRO says, great, but that's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. And then smaller companies like yours, they can't afford this. No, we come in and, you know, and, and, unfor- and but you're right. And Dan, listen, I've been at the big five, m- many of them, you know, you guys can go to my LinkedIn page and take a look. Um, I can tell you some of the large, large sponsors who have different indications across different, you know, therapeutic areas large, large portfolios still don't get the resources that they think that they should be getting. So what my message is, is just because you're signing up with one of the big fives doesn't automatically indicate or mean that you're going to get, you know, who you think you're going to get unless you're under that contract where you're handpicking the cream of the cream. But then again, how do you ensure that that person's going to stay there, Dan? Right? Yeah. There's people like James out there a big shout out to James. He's one of the best recruiters I've ever talked to and worked with. I love oh, Val from, uh, Martin, yeah, James Huxley Huxley from Huxley Morton, Huxley Morton, you know, he will poach you in two seconds. He will take your staff. And I, and I, that's what I love about the guy, right? You may not even be thinking, you know, but that's what I'm trying to say. So as a sponsor perspective, how do we retain the staff that we choose when people like James are out there, you know, providing opportunities. And at my other side of the coin is you can't fault these people for furthering their careers. So it's a broken system in every facet. And until you get people who have skin in the game, penalty clauses, risk sharing, you know, there's a whole lot of different things that need to be, you know, thought about we're going to have this lack of incentivized, you know, people at the big five who just don't care. They come in, they get their job done and it's on to the next one. And Dan, don't be fooled. They're not just allocated to one study. They're allocated to two or three studies. It's very rare to be a full FTE on a single study, especially at the senior, you know, CTM level. Or yep. the big project manager, senior project, you're managing multiple studies, maybe within the same portfolio, maybe not, you know? And so it, it's, it's, a, it's tough, man. And until that, until that changes, 
I mean, from my perspective, I just don't think that they, they, it's not that they don't care. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they do. It really, it's so dependent on, on the team you get. It's just like when you're at the CRO, if you work currently at a CRO and you want to switch to another CRO, you yeah. may have heard the grasses. Oh, it's just, you know, different, same grass, just different grass. Well, we're, it's probably true, but it depends on the team you land on. We're, I wanted to ask one thing before I bring Dr. Hazen on because, and I know you got a hard stop at the top of the hour. By the way, Guru Nation, keep the questions coming like Christine. I'll get to all of them even after Robert and Dr. Hazen leave. I'll get to all the questions. Don't worry. If I have to stay longer, it's fine. I had a question for you as we bring on Dr. Hazen, who's uniquely positioned as a site owner and a sponsor, separate companies. Mm -hmm. What do CROs actually do? Like, you know, I've been in this industry 18 years, right? I can explain some of the elements, but I don't think I can explain like the entire, like where do these costs go? Most of them go to CROs and tech vendors, yeah. And now CR, the line between CRO and tech vendor is blurring because they're either acquiring them or building them in-house. But like, what do they actually do? Everybody understands monitoring the data. But what else? Like, what else are they actually doing? So, you know, th there's a lot that they're doing, um, you know, depending on the model and what you're outsourcing. So from data management to biostats to medical writing um, you know, they have medical monitoring, they have obviously the, the site oversight management day to day, monitoring the data, cleaning the data, they're writing the clinical study report, right? They're, they're analyzing, they're, they're figuring out tables, listings and figures. Um, I had a biostats meeting with one of our CROs yesterday because we're going to do a, a database lock um, once our last patient rolls over from double blind into open label for our pivotal phase three study. But the point is, there's a lot of things in the background that they do, and it's a lot of overhead work that takes a lot of internal organization, getting a lot of different stakeholders all together. So when you're looking at a SAP, which probably you know is not spoken a lot about your on your show, Dan, the statistical analysis plan. That's you know there's so much information in that 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 tells us you know if we're going to meet our endpoints what statistical models that we use to demonstrate our p-value has significance and the amount of time and energy and overhead and labor that goes into just drafting a SAP. Forget about interpreting the data, right? And, and forget about putting the data into all these tables, all these listings, all these figures, writing a clinical study report, writing an annual DSUR, the drug safety update report, you know, having your medical team review SAEs in real time, going through protocol deviation meetings, data management meetings, data management metrics, queries, who answered the query, open queries, closed queries, pending queries, um, listing review, medical trend review, safety listings. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So from a super, super high level, it doesn't seem like they're doing much, you know, but at, at really at the end of the day, depending on how much a sponsor outsources to a given CRO, you know, they're doing a lot. They're doing a lot. And the problem is, and I'll leave it with this so we can bring in Dr. Hazen, is that there's not enough people to do the work that needs to be done adequately. 
Forget about quality. Forget about all that stuff. Not enough people Adequate. at CROs and Correct. sponsors combined. Correct. Like just not Correct. enough people combined. in the industry, period. 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 And That's we're why trying to an... do more studies. <laughs> and we're trying to do more. That's why there's an opportunity for everybody. So, yeah. you know, when you look at all those things that have to be done to actually enable an NDA submission, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on. So, um, you know, I hope that gives a little bit more insight on what CROs are actually doing. And we can actually have a whole other discussion specifically on each one of those pillars one day. It'd be pretty interesting. <laughs> it's a lot behind the scenes. We'll get to the questions. Dr. Hazen, I've been talking to Robert Goldman. Um, Hi, Robert. Hi, how are you? Good. Great. So he's great. director of sponsor now, sponsor level. He worked at the CROs for a while and now at the sponsor level. And we've just been talking about what CROs actually do, where, what are the cost of doing research and I kind of already introduced you. For those that don't know, Dr. Hazen is amazing. I was in her study when I got sick with yes. COVID. Um, she put me in her protocol. I gave her my uh, stool sample as well, <laughs> pre, pre and post. It was great. I don't have bifidobacteria. I don't have enough, so I'm drinking uh, some kombucha. <laughs> but um, she told me to stop coffee, and I said, no, nah, that's not happening. Hey, um, this is all I drink of coffee. Uh, that's great. Just, so, how okay. many ounces is that? How many, yeah, how ounces, many ounces is that? Because I need to know. Little, it, that's it. It's not even, it's like, you know, oh boy. nothing. I can't do that. That's like, I need that just to get out of bed. That's it. That's uh, my coffee this morning. Dr. Azen, you're uniquely positioned in the sense that you've been a site owner. I've known you, by the way, before you were a sponsor. Yes. I know you as Dr. Hazen, Ventura Clinical Trials, PI, site owner, yes. GI. I, that's how I know you. I've actually monitored Dr. Hazen's site too. Then the the PI in there, right? Oh Am my I gosh. One of the best. Well, it depends how you approach her. Like guys, I know how to approach Dr. Hazen. You know, we're cool. I approach her because I'm a site owner myself. I have that history you CRAs that, that don't know anything that never worked in a site. You have no clue. You can't, you can't approach Dr. Hazen. Um, with some nonsense when she's got a waiting room full of patients. So right. like you have to understand priorities. But since the pandemic, as soon as the pandemic hit, Dr. Hazen, she started researching, okay, what are we doing? She started questioning everything. I remember she sounded like a lunatic. All right. No offense. <laughs> hey, but you know what? And I knew her. If this was like a stranger, I'd be like, this is a lunatic. I need to stop talking to her. <laughs> but I knew her for years. And so when she's telling me this, I'm like, all right, it sounds crazy, but this is Dr. Hasten. Come on. She didn't lose her mind overnight. Correct. She's right. Three years later, she's right about, if not everything, almost all of it. Love it. I think pretty much everything. Even the lost microbes today, a Japanese paper just just validated our data. Finally, they're looking at the microbiome in ICU patients in Japan. Well, we looked at, you know, patients with the microbiome three years ago, right? So we'll get into all the nuts and bolts, but what motivated you? Because progenobiome, you kind of had it before the pandemic, right? Yes. But then the pandemic hit, and rather than you letting it interrupt your startup, you doubled down and took COVID. You became one of the forefront 
leaders on on COVID research, independent from the NIH. Independent, yes, because it needs independence. We needed independence, non-biased, not paid by pharma, not sponsored to to push a, one product. We needed independent research, and so I felt I own a genetic sequencing lab. I own a a small, you know, I own a site, a small CRO, you know, like you, you, we've done clinical trials, we've written protocols, submitted them through the FDA portal. So I felt, you know what, because I'm able to like have access to that portal, I have access to the literature, I have scientists working for me. I have a genetic sequencing lab that's on the cutting edge of microbiome research. And I understood the microbiome before anyone because we already had accumulated a lot of stool samples to of patients of different races, different cultures, different um, genders, different diseases, different patients that were on different medications. So we had a good, you know, not a good, but like a, a beginning of what the microbiome looks like, right? And also remember, I do fecal transplant, the process of taking stools from a healthy donor to an unhealthy. So I was able to see from, you know, just looking at, um, you know, improvement from C. diff, what a normal microbiome should look like, right? What a healthy microbiome should look like, right? Because when you've attained, and I always said that to the, you know, to the agency, and I've said this to the, to the NIH and NIST, only when you attain a cure can you understand the microbiome. And unfortunately, we're in a field where, you know, to attain a cure in medicine is really practicing the art of medicine. It's innovating. It's figuring out "Mm, maybe this drug with this drug and really taking guts to give it to the patient, right? So when COVID hit, I felt I saw the data out there. And you know what? It was pretty convincing for me. It was convincing, especially the one in France from Didier Raoul, because I said to myself, here's a guy who's exposed himself to, you know, hundreds and thousands of patients and he, he's not sick. He's still standing. In fact, he's still alive. Right. So there's got to be something to his methods. If he's willing to risk his life to save patients, he must understand the mechanism of action of these drugs better than anyone. So I basically took on those protocols. Those were, as you saw, the first protocols, um, you know, hydroxychloroquine, ZPAC, and then hydroxychloroquine. I was in that one. That's the yes, one I was you in. were. You were. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, you know, we were running these protocols until it became political. And then what we saw is an interference with research. What we saw is media interference and political interference. Now, I ask you, why did that happen? You know, if anything, I think my trials really opened up the eyes to how much interference we have in research. So in a way, I'm glad I stepped in because you know me. You knew I wasn't crazy. My colleagues know me. They know I'm not crazy. My, you know, the FDA knows me. I've done how many trials? Over 300? They've audited you before. They've audited me. And actually, prior to the to to COVID, I never had a 483. Never. Then I do a trial on ivermectin and I forgot to submit a form to the IRB on time. Bam, I get a 483. So, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. We still have collegial. Listen, I still talk to the, to the FDA about another protocol for Parkinson's. You know, innovation needs to continue. They cannot just stop innovation because it doesn't fit their agenda. 
you know, and the good thing with me is I'm running multiple wheels at once. So I was running COVID. I was running autism. I was running Parkinson's. I was running your trials. I was running ulcerative colitis, celiac sprue, you know, from pharma and sponsors. So yeah. I can run all that. You're and doing so, all kinds of research, industry-sponsored, yeah. investigator-initiated. Before we go down the COVID rabbit hole, which we can yes. come back to, yes. but I wanted like a dialogue between you and Robert and me to facilitate it on where these costs go. Because now that you have a sponsor, so you're not just a side anymore. You're a sponsor. You're both. You put your own money, unlike mm -hmm. these pharma that use investors' money, and, and CROs and all these startups that use uh, VC money. You put your own money, Dr. Hazen's yes. money, retirement money, into funding yes. your research. So you, I remember you were calling me, hey, do you have a good IRB? Do you have a vendor for this? Do you have a vendor for that? All my answers were like, yes, we do. None of them are good, and they're all expensive. So people don't understand where do these costs go, whether it's a small investigator-initiated trial or a large trial like Robert's doing, like where do these costs go? Not a lot of it doesn't go to the sites. Like people just think everything goes to the sites. No, we're just no. a vendor like all the other vendors. No, they, yeah. they, so research is very expensive. Whether you do a study of N of one, which is like one patient, or you do a thousand, just the costs are still there, right? People don't understand when I submit an IND to the FDA to do fecal transplant, for example, that kid with autism, you know, we had to hire an IRB. IRBs are not cheap, regulatory boards. They basically just the initiation, they have to review. It's anywhere from 2000 to 5000, right? And then they have to, you have to constantly keep on them every three months to kind of give them an update and a report, etc. That becomes expensive, right? So right off the bat, you're paying for a regulatory board that basically is overlooking the research and is acting as an independent. Unfortunately, too many IRBs are not independent anymore because they've all been taken over by venture capitalists, right? So it's very difficult to find the mom and pop's shop of IRB. Um, and unfortunately, like what I saw with my trial, because I submitted to the toughest IRB, New England Journal IRB. In fact, they were at your... At your uh, meeting one time right oh they came and, to meet up yeah yeah and and basically we hired them and then they dropped us because they got the study from moderna and pfizer so conflict you know, of interest for them for right them. so they it was conflict of interest exactly so basically they dropped us we had to find another irb and i said you know i'm not gonna find i'm gonna find a small irb but even my rb right now has been taken over by venture capitalists so you know, it's very difficult to stay, um, to find good IRBs. And we've switched a lot, you know. And then when you switch, you have to repay the whole initiation fees of the IRB because, you know, then they have, you know, it's a whole new board. It's lawyers. It's, you know, the whole cost is like legal. Now, that's the first cost. The second cost is you have to write the protocol. So you have to have writers, right? You have to have regulatory personnel. And remember, you hooked me up with this personnel, this guy at the beginning, I said, I need a regulatory to deal with the FDA. And he was $400 an hour. I mean, yeah. A Shout out to King Lee. I think he's retired now, but King Lee, man, he's an OG. He's uh, definitely, it's not cheap. It's, it's not, not cheap. cheap, but he's not the only one. I mean, they're all about 300 to 400 an hour. 
So just, and that's the regulatory person that's dealing with the FDA, okay? So right there, you have a $300 to $400 an hour person that deals with the FDA to get the protocol approved, right? And then you have to write the protocol, right? So somebody has to sit on their desk, look at all the data, look at all the publications, make, you know, create a 120-page document, right, that we like to call a protocol, and with inclusion, exclusion. So you have to research all that. And that's in the thousands. I mean, it can go up to $100,000 of just writing a protocol, finding the papers, finding the justification. Then you give that protocol that you feel is like golden and you go here, um, regulatory person at $300 an hour, submit it to the FDA. Then the FDA comes back with 25 pages of well, you forgot to look at this. You forgot to look at that. So we start the ball rolling. You've already, by the time you start the ball rolling, you've already spent like easily $300,000. Am I right, Robert? No, you're absolutely right. And yeah. we, we didn't even mention the investigator's brochure yet. Um, that, oh, that is also another, <laughs> that's another, you know, a huge hundred page document. But I, I think to break it down for the audience, right, whether or not you're using a CRO, whether or not you're doing it like Dr. Hazen, which is investigator initiated studies, there's really three pillars to, to costing, right? Yes. The first, the first pillar is your direct labor fees, whether that's being, you know, people like Dr. Hazen's referring to that work for her or, or your CRO core clinical team that that you're outsourcing the work to. So that's direct labor fees. The second thing is your pass-through fees, right? Reimbursing your vendors for, for monthly costs, whether you're doing imaging labs, central ECGs, you're paying holders. for hotels, exactly. Airplane no, holders, tickets, rent. Holders. Yeah. All that stuff, right? So you have your pass-through costs. And then you have your monthly fees, right? So you have direct fees, vendor fees, pass-through fees, and your labor fees. And then the biggest cost, arguably, is your investigator site grants. So that's a whole nother bucket of money. So again, to summarize for your audience, Dan, it's your direct labor fees, your pass-through monthly vendor fees, and then your investigator site payment fees. And this is a this is just like Dr. Hazen said, very, very, very expensive. And we always talk about fair market value, you know, and fair market value really, really depends on the jurisdiction and the geography and the demography and where people are located, right? An ECG in San Francisco is not going to be the same money as um, an ECG in Lubbock, Texas, right? So, so again, what is fair market value? Fair market value is really all in the eye of the beholder. So as a sponsor, when we sit and try and negotiate these contracts and give budgets that are fair competitive so that your study does not get deprioritized, you know, it, it's all the same type of thing. So regardless if you're doing investigator initiated, you're doing it on your own, you know, the costs are staggering. And there isn't always a deliverable that meets the cost to really tie it with. So if I'm paying X amount of dollars, like Dr. Hazen will tell you, she expects high quality, right? When she submits to the regulatory consultant at 400 bucks an hour to review the FDA feedback on the protocol she just spent a hundred grand getting written, you know, she expects this to be done. What ends up happening is it's 25 rounds of back and forth review, which drives the cost even further north. 
you know, and there's no efficiency because the FDA does not tell you exactly what to do. They talk in circles and they don't give you bind that they give you non-binding guy. Like they don't give you like, we suggest you could do this. You could do that. Well, I could jump off a bridge too, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, so, so it's never a concrete direction, right? Cause they never want to be beholden to what they said. Cause you get, let's say you get past a preclinical, you get into an IND, you get through phase one, you get through phase two, and then you come to the end of phase two meeting minutes, the end of phase two meeting minutes, man, that is like the Bible. You have got to follow everything that they recommend in there. Right. So you know, the costing comes from all of that, but I just wanted to break that out for your audience to understand the three different buckets, really. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, I do, I'm the top recruiter for like ulcerative colitis and C. diff and they, and most of the time they need a colonoscopy and they don't need, and per protocol, they need the colonoscopy exactly. So if you randomize a patient on Wednesday, you need to do the colonoscopy two weeks exactly to the day, plus or minus two days on Wednesday. It's tough to find a surgical center that is going to be, hey, we've got opening for that exact day at the last minute. So my cases are always done in Beverly Hills because we have the luxury of saying, hey, well, even if we're the only case, bring the, the tech, bring the anesthesiologist, bring everybody. So obviously my cost of a colonoscopy is not going to be the same as a person in South Carolina who owns their own surgical center, frankly, right? This is, I'm part of, you know, I don't own because I don't like the headache. I already have enough headache with clinical research <laughs> on the surgical center. Uh, but this is exactly what you were saying. Those are the costs that you don't think about. And then when you write a protocol and you think it's so, you know, I wrote a protocol for autism uh, for one kid. It took me three years to get approved. Of course, COVID was in between, but I thought, hey, this protocol is amazing. I'm going to write the paper. We actually had good success with the protocol uh, and it's finishing like this month. So we're going to be writing the paper. We wanted to be approved for 30 more patients. We've been at it since for three years now with that 30 patient, which is exact, you know, similar case as the first one we did. And we literally, I thought, you know, every day now, every month, I'm going to get approved every month. And we're still at it back and forth. And the questions you think like, you know, it's unbelievable because you go, do they wake up at like four o'clock in the morning and think of like, how am I going to, you know, stop Dr. Hazen from doing this? <laughs> what am I going to come up with? You know, right. one of the questions was, um, it's too risky for kids to donate the siblings. My protocol is siblings donating to their siblings, right? Familial fecal transplant. Because I feel that, you know, you, there's the genetic component and there's also the microbiome component, right? So in order to to match as best as we can, maybe, you know, so that's my, my hypothesis. That's my protocol. So one of the things was we feel it's too dangerous to screen these patients for MRSA because you have to do a nasal swab and you have to do some blood work. I'm like, first of all, the blood work, it's like a couple of tubes, but the nasal swabs they had a problem with. I'm like, wait a minute. We just went through COVID Kids could not go to Hawaii unless they got a nasal swab. My kids, I had to take them to Hawaii. They had to get a nasal swab. So all of a sudden, nasal swab is risky. So we had to, like, figure out a way to answer that without being, you know, uh, you know, tech, without, you know, finding a way anyways. So we submitted that. Then we came back with, like, more questions. And it's sort of like this back and forth of, 
you you end up loving the FDA and you hate the FDA, right? It's that, and but same thing think- with pharma. You end up loving this field. It really takes a certain personality to do clinical research, don't you think, Dan? Yeah, but oh, absolutely. Because exactly. you hate your sponsor and you love them. You hate them, you love them because <laughs> it's they. It's symbiotic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a site, yes. So this question, okay, regulation is important, but the regulatory authorities need to do more by making the process seamless. Do you think there's an incentive to make the process seamless? Or do you think too many people are making money off of the inefficiencies and it's designed in a way to keep the smaller companies small? Listen, my attitude is if you're guaranteed to pay someone nine to five and they keep coming back nine to five and they're getting paid for doing the same thing over and over, what's the incentive there to speed up things, right? You've seen the VA, right? We've all worked at VA. I've worked at VA hospitals, right? I mean, you know, you have to like really be a bulldozer of a physician to get things done over there because it's like, you know, just to move papers or to move a patient or to treat a patient. So I think, you know, this is the problem. We have the research is governed by the government and the government is not efficient. I'm I'm just going to say it. And also the government does not have, is not the private sector. The government doesn't have the ability. Think about what the government is overlooking right now, right? We expect the FDA to overlook our foods, our, you know, our nutrients, our vitamins, our probiotics, our medications, our protocols, our vaccines. That's a lot of work for all these agents. And the agency is not that huge, right? I mean, it's the same thing with the FBI. We expect them to be overlooking all these crimes. But when the crime is is higher than the the people overlooking the crime, we have a problem, right? And the same thing when the these sponsors are coming from every direction and when the nutritional you know aspect comes in and people are putting microbes in yogurts and and new probiotics that are coming out, you know, how does the FDA overlook all that? This is and I've had discussions because I've had FDA agents in my office. You know, this is not an easy job that they have by all means. So this is very difficult for the agents on the field. For the regulatory people that are overlooking, I think part of the reason they're delaying or maybe not delaying is because they are overwhelmed, frankly. There's not enough resources. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we just submitted a spa request and it's a 45-day timeline because we already were granted a spa. So my point is, you're waiting 45 days just to understand if you're granted a status and forget about meeting with the agency. Then you got to request a type C meeting. You have to prepare a package that takes hours upon hours. It's, it's, it, it could be hundreds of documents to get an hour of their face-to-face time, which by the end of the day could take up to 70 days from the date of request. So now you have 100 plus days. 33% of, of the year has gone by just to know if you even are in a good standing with your protocol design, if they're in agreement, and if you can proceed. You know, it, it, I mean, the, 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 if there is no incentive for a governmental body that overlooks to, to speed things up. And you would think it's in the best interest of public health to so advance they, treatments. There's just how not- did they How did they speed but, but things here's up the for thing. the- Oh, go no, ahead, he, Dr. Hazen. no, here's the thing. And I think this was the red flag to me. 
and Robert, I maybe to you, but definitely Dan and I, how did they pass these vaccines so fast? Right. That's what I was going to ask. How did they speed up? I, the well, vaccine? You know, again, it's, it's, it's the, it's all about who, you know, not what, you know, I, I stand by that. And when, when you're a big pharma Pfizer, a big pharma Moderna, and you can make a phone call and it's an all hands on deck approach. They, they, they put the other therapies on a prioritization, which was much lower. And they took all the manpower and focused on this pandemic that was politicized. And well, they focused you know, on one, one treatment. They focused on right. one arm. They didn't focus on both. Now to give credit to the FDA, they did approve my clinical trials with hydroxychloroquine within 24 hours. So it's not that they tried to stop treatment because I don't believe for a minute that they tried to stop treatment. And actually the FDA has been very lenient with my protocols, considering, you know, I'm a small, you know, person, I'm not a big pharma. Um, I think what the problem is, is that they didn't anticipate all this PR and, and the FDA doesn't like to look bad, right? Because they are supposed to be doing a job for us, the consumer, for protecting us and our safety. So to me, I think what happened is it was already interfered from way before. I mean, when you saw ads on the vaccines and that was the only hope, that was the only narrative from the beginning, before even the clinical trials were happening, Bill Gates was selling the vaccine. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. and at the end of the day, it's who has the most money that's paying for research, unfortunately. And I think we've definitely seen that with COVID. You know, when Bill Gates is spending money on putting Moderna up to par with a messenger RNA and he's got all his money on the messenger RNA. And, you know, he uses a picture of Madonna and naked in a bathtub saying she donated a million pounds <laughs> to the vaccine study that was already branding before the study even started right so that was that was one then you see him investing money to kill hydroxychloroquine to to do a clinical trial on hydroxychloroquine and to do a clinical trial on ivermectin i mean in what world does it does the competition start taking on ingredients separate ingredients from another clinical trial and starts doing them at the same time that they're running a vaccine i mean this is conflict of interest right off the bat. And then on top of that, you know, he's got his hands with the vaccine, uh, with the ivermectin in an injection. So I think we need to, you know, call a spade a spade and see that the problem in research may not be the regulatory agency, but maybe one person or one group of people controlling research and controlling the funds of research, which puts us at a disadvantage, you and me, Robert, because yeah. we are trying to do the right research. We are trying to put our hypothesis into motion. We are doing everything by the book, working with the FDA on our pennies. And at the same time, you know, we have all these forces that are trying to destroy the advancement. And I've seen that. And I think Dan, you and I have seen that over and over in clinical research where, you know, a small guy comes in with a great hypothesis. The drug is actually working amazing. I had a drug for gastroparesis. It was amazing. The patients don't have gastroparesis anymore. Gone. Never made it to market. What happened there, right? Pressure, squeezing, destroying the drug, reputation destruction, you know, media, interference, politics, interference. And But you know who pays for that? The patients. The patients yep. pay for that because 
We and and it's gonna come back to bite them because unfortunately they're gonna be patients as well. Stopping innovation, stopping research interferes with progress, interferes when you become the patient. So what did you learn? Both of you guys, I guess, Robert, because you, you came from the CRO to sponsor. So it's a different mindset there, right? Like, let's start with that first. From CRO to sponsor, that's a different mindset. Like, how did your mind shift? Well, it shifted because, I mean, you know, I, I spent so long understanding what the clients are looking for on a day-to-day basis that when I moved over to the sponsor side, I understood what the deliverables are. And I was able to oversee the, the CRO because really, you, you know, no CRO, small, big or large, is going to be able to tell me, you know, here's why we can or cannot do this, right? They're all the same. They have the same processes. Typically, it's it's the same type of a thing, right? You go to one supermarket, you've been to a mall. You go to one pharmacy, you've been to a mall. Obviously, there's differences and nuances. So for me, it was just remembering now that I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm making less decisions, but higher quality decisions versus, you know, putting out small fires every single minute of the day. You know, I leave my office for five seconds. I come back to, you know, eight teams messages that I miss, you know, this CRA is on site. He or she has a problem. This site is waiting for your phone call back. This vendor um, is out of a supply. You know, it's just constant issues and and barrage of problems. Whereas on the sponsor side, you know, it's, it's less into the day-to-day nitty gritty, but you're making higher quality decisions less frequently. And then Dr. Hazen, you went from site owner. You're also private. You have a private practice as Mm -hmm. well, by the way, Uh, Robert, she might be a good fit for some of your studies coming out. I'll put a plug in for Dr. Hazen. I've monitored her site. She'll do good. Uh, Dr. Azen, PI, site owner, private practice, now sponsor. What advice do you have for sites now that you've been a sponsor? How, uh, I think, what kind of site would you want? So what kind of site? I'd want a site that's not, um, that's not owned by a big CRO, first of all. So <laughs> I, that's the first thing. Because um, what I, about DCT vendor? What about these big direct-to-your-house yeah, I'm not into all that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, look, I, I, as much as they're trying to decentralize research, I think good quality research still becomes the patient with the doctor and the doctor getting the history from the patient, not you getting it from electronic medical records or from a coordinator that, you know, entered all this stuff. Because at, at the end of the day, if you don't have PI oversight on your research, your research is nowhere, Right. So one of the things that I think I'm, I'm actually, you know, my forte is PI oversight. And I think that's probably why I stay in research. I stay in research. She because... has great oversight because she never leaves the office, Robert. <laughs> no, but it's, it's so funny because one of the monitors from Merck one time, I did a study for Merck and they said, yeah, Dr. Hazen has a lot of PI oversight. Too much oversight. Too much. She'll deal with the monitors. Too much. No, no. She answered I... queries for me. True story. The coordinator was sick. My CRO that I was a contractor for said, hey, we need these things done now. We have database lock. I feel bad for them because they're small. They got, you know, investors and all that. I said, Dr. Azen, let's log you in. Put forgot password. Let's sit here, get the email. She did all that. 
answered queries. I've never seen a PI answer queries before. I've had that happen to me one time um, with a physician and he was his own coordinator because he didn't trust coordinators, but you're right. It's the exception. <laughs> it's the exception to the rule, but Dr. Hazen, that's why, I mean, I, I don't mean to add to your plate, but you need to begin educating other PIs how to act in that capacity because yeah, I'm sure I it's paid off dividends for you. Well, I think I think the the it paid off in that I can sleep at night, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm not always liked by certain pharmaceutical companies because I call a spade a spade, and if there's a serious adverse event, listen, I've caught monitors, you know, tell my coordinator, oh, this is not a serious adverse event, doesn't need to be entered in the EDC, right? That's a that's a problem, right? Because I I'm before I close the the case books and. Every site and sponsors knows this. Every sponsor knows this. And Dan knows this. I have to review the chart. And the one thing that I review when I before I close the case books is my serious adverse events and my adverse events. That is the one thing I think as PIs, we have to be really meticulous about. Because unfortunately, those are the side effects that pop up after the study goes to market. So it's great. The pharmaceutical companies make money. They bring this drug to market. But then if the drug crashes in about two years, then they go back to those records and say, but wait, Dr. Hazen, you reported it on this chart. Why isn't it in the electronic data capture? Right. So I think my biggest our biggest job as physician is really making sure that the side effects are reported adequately and the serious adverse events are reported because unfortunately, you're a good sponsor, I'm sure, and you're ethical and righteous. Not every sponsor is righteous because they answer to the businessman and the venture capitalist that, that they only look at the dollar sign. So they're like, well, you didn't meet the deadline. You missed this. And what do you mean our product is having side effects? What do you mean the patient's vomiting blood or spitting of blood, right? I mean, that's a serious adverse event, right? That needs to be reported. So, you know, this is the big problem that we have in research is if there is no PI oversight and the FDA cares about PI oversight. That's why they look for, well, what hint do we have? If a PI is just signing charts, he's just a robot. You don't even need, you, you can hire an actor for that, right? You don't need a doctor. Which, which we see all the time, Dr. Hayes. Yes. So if they're just signing the chart, an actor can do that, right? And play doctor. You know, because then the job, it becomes the coordinators doing the research, not the doctor, right? The single role of the physician in clinical trial is really to oversee that serious adverse events were reported, that adverse events were reported, that informed consent process was given. You know, all these things that we didn't see with the vaccine studies, by the way, um, you know, informed consent was not properly uh, given. Uh, you know, so many of my friends that joined these trials, you know, they weren't given a copy of the consent, um, you know, and then adverse events. We have no idea. Right. And the problem right now is not is when these sites that are. So my favorite is really as a sponsor is sites that are not owned by venture capitalists. My favorite as an IRB is IRBs that are not owned independent. Right. What about IRBs that mingle and all these other businesses, conferences and training programs and all those stuff? I don't really mind that because I think it's all part of the education. As long as they're not paid by the common, you know, source that pays pharma and that pays the sites, right? But right now what you have is you have a structure that's paying pharma 
IRBs and sites, that's not, that's not ethical. That's not independent, right? Because it's the same payer is paying all those. So most doctors in clinical research are owned by a CRO now. I mean, CR, we've seen the, you've seen it, CROs owning, you know, yeah, multiple they buy sites. Side. Yep. 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 And it's not like a CRO. By the way, IRBs too, you know, some, there's yeah. some IRBs that own sites. So there's a lot of acquisition that's, a, that's occurring that is unfortunately muddying the waters of research. So you think but that's getting a, worse or better? Because we're about to head into a recession where there's going to be a lot of new M&A, big companies taking advantage of poorly capitalized, smaller yeah, ones. Yeah, I think the gap is going to be bigger. You know, I mean, you know, it, the economy, definitely what we've seen of COVID is, you know, the rich got richer and then the poor got poorer. So this is the gap is getting bigger and it's going to crunch, you know, the, the middle people. So and, we, and I and I believe we haven't seen the rock bottom yet. I think mm -hmm. it's it's still it's still Just heading starting. that way. Just starting. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and the rock bottom in finances, but also rock bottom in health. You know, when research is interfered with, there is no health that's advancing. There is no treatment that's advancing. And like I said, unfortunately, the people are going to be, you know, the people are going to be the victims. But the people are getting educated now. You know, they don't count on clinical trials. They are learning. They are educating themselves. They're following. People on, you know, when I look at Twitter, you know, I have like 94,000 people following me, you know, it didn't just happen. You know, they started trusting me. So I think trust is going to be a very important thing in the future. Who do you trust with your life? Right. Right. So do you trust a physician or do you trust a suit? And I had this little thing called the lab coat versus the suit. You know, at the end of the day, whatever we can say about doctors, you know, they are trying to uphold an oath. But there is pressure on doctors. And I feel really bad for my industry of medicine uh, because doctors are not allowed to practice the art of medicine. There's a pressure. They're not allowed to practice to go to practice in a hospital unless they follow a certain guideline. And if they deviate from the guideline, they get their privileges revoked. Mm -hmm. So imagine you've spent 16 years training to be a physician and then all of a sudden that can be taken away from you, you know. I feel bad for them. I'm in a different position because I've put myself in a different position than most doctors where I am completely independent of the system. I'm not, you know, a hospital. Thanks to patient. research, right? Thanks to research. Yeah, thanks to research because research kind of like, you know, opened my eyes to new innovations, to new ways. I, I could be a consultant. I could be, but, you know, it's not only research. It's really also discovering that I, as a physician, have tremendous abilities if you can run a site, you can run any business, right? I mean, that's that's the reality. So I think you have, you know, we as physicians need to understand that we are gifted in, in practicing, but medicine doesn't need to be the end-all, be-all. How many doctors have opened hotels? How many doctors have opened restaurants and said, you know what, that's it, I'm done with this because this is not what I signed up for. So that's the biggest problem. Right now, the brave physicians are standing up right now. You hear them. They risk their reputation. They risk their lives treating patients, um, you know, and they're still standing. But after that group, you know, that's resisting this movement of taking over medicine is gone, there will be no, no movement. You might as well have a robot treating you. And I think that's... that's they're headed that way. They're headed that way. They want... I mean, listen, there's going to be a time where it's going to be Amazon... You've got Crohn's, here are your drugs. Of course, it's not going to cure anybody, but hey, 
Like, oh, Amazon's doing all kinds of things. They bought the Minute Clinics. They bought, they're doing pharmacy services now. They just announced today $5 for Prime Pharmacy delivered. What do you guys, are you guys generally bullish though on this industry as we wrap up? I know both of you guys got to go, but generally bullish going forward, like let's say this next decade for clinical research. Yeah, I'll just go first. I'm, I'm always bullish and optimistic in what we're doing here. Um, but if, if things continue to go the way that they're going, we're just going to be losing therapies that should make it into patients, uh, you know, mouths uh, or bodies, let's just call it that. But uh, cautiously bullish, Dan. Mm -hmm. I'm bullish. I mean, I've been, obviously, I wouldn't have stepped into COVID, I think. Uh, but I think it's time to get the public involved. I think it's time to empower the people. It's time to explain to them what research is all about. And it's time for people to invest in their own research. You know, I stepped into COVID to understand COVID myself for my family, my nine doctors that are on the front line. I wanted to protect them. Um, you know, I did that research. Yes, it was costly, but I did it for myself. It saved me. It saved my family. It saved my friends, saved all my patients, lost no one in the pandemics. That's something to be proud of. So, you know, my research at the end, you know, was donation to the to humanity. And I hope we can keep going on this path of, People, good people coming in to sponsor and help us raise funds, you know, whether it be it in donations or investments, etc. Privately, without the, you know, the top, but essentially good people coming together to support. So I think if we can achieve that, I think that would be a turnaround. I think that would be a healthcare revolution, in my opinion, where patients start empowering themselves. And we give them that ability by helping them do research for them for themselves yeah well, right, well it was I a mean, pleasure guys no it's my pleasure thank you dan thank you dr hayes and we'll talk again soon thank offline. you and good luck to you i thank I'm you we'll talk you. soon you too yes. you too thank you for having you me again dan all right thank you guys both. bye bye bye, -bye. all right dr hazen got you a study um if you gotta go, yeah, we're still live. If you want to go yeah. through some more of these questions, or... yeah, I don't know where I'm gonna put that study on like my plates, but you know, we'll find someone. There, but, he's got so, an interesting company. He's a very um, good person to work with. I I like him. Yeah, he's, yeah, he he's. Um, we got a study at Yuma Clinical Trials, so I guess maybe we can talk a little bit about Ventura Clinical Trials. Like, how has that been going during the, all the limelight's been on Progenobiome and you, right. but. What about Ventura Clinical Trials? I think, I think it probably, I you know, it's still steady. Ventura Clinical Trials is still going. We have a study on celiac sprue right now, study with ulcerative colitis. I'm just more selective of who I pick as my sponsors now. Are you working, like, are you selective as far as, like, any big pharma you say no? Or are you just, like, looking at Yeah, there's at the a drug? couple of big pharmas I say no. I don't even look at their projects. I mean, they've already, they, you know, they blacklisted me years ago because you know me, I'm if a spade is a spade. Uh, so, but I have, but they're coming back and I have no interest. So uh, there's a couple of big farmers that I like uh, without saying their names, but, mm. you know, right now what I saw from COVID, I'm just frankly disgusted of the whole, you know, lobbyist movement, the whole PR, the whole media, all that just disgusted me that I, I want nothing to do with, you know, the companies that started all that, um, that are part of that big movement of, you don't trash your competition, right? To sell a product, right? You 
showcase your product because if your product works, you don't need to trash anyone, right? I mean, and, and that was, that's the same thing in medicine, right? If you're a good physician, people come to you because you're a good physician. You don't need to trash your next door neighbor that's a physician because you feel that he has the business. Do good medicine, have a good relationship with your patients, and then they'll come, right? Or not. Give us, give us a few things to be hopeful about as far as GI is concerned, gastroenterology. Like what? Is it one of the hot areas of science? I think, I think the microbiome has put GI doctors on the plot on, on stage. And I think it will continue to put GI doctors on stage. I think, um, you know, GI was always recognized as colonoscopy, colon cancer screening, but I think there's going to be therapeutics in the future that are going to be at the level of needing a colonoscopy and not necessarily fecal transplant, but probably precision, more precision medicine. And so I think, you know, as we discover these microbes, as we see these microbes being the culprit of possibly diseases, you know, what I showed in, um, in autism with a bacteria we discovered was lactobacillus animalis in this kid that basically resolved after fecal transplant, the kid's improving, you know, maybe this is a new way of seeing, you know, reaching an improvement, finding the bugs, discovering new bugs, um, you know, there's a whole f- new frontier of microbes out there. So that's yeah. going to keep doctors, you know, GI doctors on their, on, on their toes and infectious disease doctors on their toes. So I think the microbiome, and also it's going to bring the field of medicine together, in my opinion. So Jeez. because, you know, neuro, neuro is starting to, neurologists are starting to look at GI as, hey, we got to fix the brain, but we got to fix the, the gut too. There will be a time where pulmonologists are going to start looking at the gut as therapeutics first to fix the asthma. We've certainly seen that in GI, where you fix the gut, you fix the asthma. What about like autoimmune stuff? A lot of that. All the autoimmune. So I think the microbiome is going to unite medicine. That's my hopeful thing. Uh, You know, Progenobiome was really created to unite physicians, right? Uh, To get doctors to see the microbiome to, you know, bring doctors to understand the new wave and not just leave it to the naturopaths and the businessmen that are trying to make money off of that, right? Because I really feel that this is a complex area where you're dealing with trillions of bugs. You're not only dealing with trillions of bugs in the individual, but you're also dealing with different races, different regions, um, different genetics, and different medications that are on board impacting the microbiome. So I think it's going to have to be precision medicine in the future. And it's important for doctors to start at the baseline. So we're basically writing the dictionary of microbes and diseases. And that's what's going to be, you know, that's why I'm doing the 57 clinical trials of progenobiome. So that's taking a lot of time. Um, and, and that's been my passion. So, you know, Ventura clinical trials, unfortunately, took you know, a hit because I'm not focusing as much on bringing in studies. Not that we are not sought after. I mean, we get 10 clinical trials. We get asked, you know, to be sponsored. I mean, to be sites for like probably 10 studies a week. So we are, you know, still sought after. We're just, 
you know, I can't take them all, you know, so I, I'm, I take celiac spoo because that's, I have a passion for it. I took Parkinson's because I'm doing clinical trials on the microbiome and Parkinson's. So I always also want to see the therapeutics because I want to advance the disease, right? If there were clinical trials on autism, I would take them on too, because I've got a huge, remember doing clinical trials on the microbiome opened up a whole new uh, world for me where people are coming from all over the world with different diseases. So we have a huge database of patients that we are test we are going to be testing for the microbiome. Of course, we need to raise funds to do all these testing, but we have a huge database and huge wait list. So at any point we can also, you know, um, help companies that are good companies that have a protocol that is sound protocol, not just, hey, we've developed this protocol in in eight days and you should put it to market. You know, I'm very, very critical about the protocols. I really, like I go above and beyond. So because I have the responsibility with the patient when they enter my site. So it doesn't matter what I get paid from the sponsor on the protocol, as long as the protocol is sound to me. Is there, do you think, like, is there any relationship between monoclonal antibodies and that kind of that wave in medicine and microbiome well, or are those unrelated? Anti- yeah, I mean, in some areas, definitely for uh, C. diff, we've not really seen it to be that great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fecal transplant is still, you know, in my opinion, the best avenue for these patients, especially because we've discovered that they lost the diversity. So therefore, they need... Um, their own, they need a new microbiome, right? People that have lost diversity, that have lost phylums, you know, and are left with one phylum, you can't regrow what you don't have. If you don't have the seeds or the microbes in your gut, doesn't matter what you're eating, you're not going to regrow them. So in my opinion, the field of fecal transplant is going to be booming and and that's going to be the need. The, the the problem and the challenges with fecal transplant is really the donor right now, because who yeah. is your donor, right? Because as as we've seen, donor quality, in my opinion, you know, is important. So in a way, like you're you're relating this more to the stem cells than to like monoclonal antibodies, as far as fecal. I think fecal I transplant. think stem cells is the future. I think, you know, platelet-rich plasma is the future. Fecal material, probably not fecal material, but microbes is the future. Do you think we could Um, ever get like off the shelf, like off the shelf fecal matter that? No, no, no. it's it's too, feces have so many viruses and bacteria that, and you may not have those viruses and bacteria, you know, and are, are you compatible? I mean, you know, remember, four people died from fecal transplant. So, you know, yeah. it's not something that I take lightly. And I think all of us that do fecal transplant are very, very careful to analyze the donor very carefully. I mean, I go above and beyond even what the FDA requires. Did they die due to the body's immune response to it or? Well, I mean, you know, these people were immunosuppressed, right? Oh, but okay. the whole point is you're giving a new microbiome to change the, the immunosuppression, right? Um, so the problem is if you didn't test your microbes properly and a patient has vancomycin-resistant E. coli, for example, and you're implanting that, bam, for that, in, 
for that immunosuppressed person. I think also, you know, COVID is going to end up being a problem in the future because I don't think we're testing the stools adequately for COVID. And I think we probably are going to start seeing people having, you know, severe COVID post-transplant potentially. So I think, yeah. What about, um, and maybe I'm opening a can of worms on this one, but mRNA platform as a potential driver like is there's got to be promise even though you've been critical of the covid response but is there i'm very very until we understand the true mechanism of action of these messenger rna and we look at what are they doing to the microbiome what are they doing to viruses so remember i i presented at the american college of gastro a paper a poster that won the best research award, basically that showed um, that vaccines affect the microbiome. Okay. That needs to be looked at. That needs to be paid attention to. Right. And not only that, but we saw persistent damage in four patients for up to nine months. We, we collected stools and these stools are not cheap. I mean, this is like thousands of dollars to, to analyze these stools. So we couldn't do like a thousand, but we did just four that we followed for nine months And those four had persistent damage to the microbiome. So I think we need to pay attention to the damage to the microbiome. Uh, I think we also need to pay attention to these viruses that are popping up, right? Why is a kid that's been vaccinated now severely ill with influenza or RSV? Is the spike protein triggering other viruses, right? And this is like, Mm -hmm. I'm telling you what I see vision and you know how I am as far as visionary, right? Do you think that, I mean, because the body uses, the argument would be, well, the body uses mRNA naturally, but do you think that the artificial mRNA technology, because it bypasses the natural or the innate immune system, do you think that has a lot to do with your I think anything unnatural the body rejects, right? Mm -hmm. I think an unnatural microbe, uh, the body will reject it. An unnatural, you know, spike protein, the body will reject it eventually. I mean, it's not going to reject it. It's probably going to do what it's meant to do at the time. However, uh, you know, to create these antibodies. However, what is it doing long term is the biggest problem. Is the body starting to create an immune response towards that, right? That foreign yeah. object. So, I think, you know, we've seen that with, you know, breast implant, you put them on, but then how many women have had autoimmune processing problems from breast implant, right? So, you know, anything that's foreign to the body, you know, the body is going to develop an immune response to develop, to go, to fight that, that, uh, that fake, you know. Do you think monoclonal antibodies are in the same category or do those show more promise to you? I don't know. I don't know. Those are good questions. I don't know. We'll <laughs> These see. are things I think about lately. Um, well, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, possibly, possibly. These are the growth areas of research. You know, that's mainly why I'm asking. Uh, obviously, FMT, microbiome. The problem I, I see with synthetic gets rejected, in my opinion, long term. Anything yeah. synthetic. But the problem is you're not going to figure it out until later, right? I think if you look at the microbes, right, if you put a synthetic microbe, right, the microbiome is going to the, – the rest of the microbes are going to recognize it's not, a, it's not one of theirs. 
So I think it's going right. to start fighting. I mean, on a simplistic method anyways, that's how I look yeah. at it. It's so probably going to recognize it. Would you say the difference between these therapies, specifically MABs and uh, mRNAs, that kind of tweak the immune system to do certain things, you think, I mean, the difference between that and traditional small molecules like lisinopril that I take, ACE inhibitor, um, obviously that's not playing, at least we know that's not playing with my immune system. So is right. that like where you're drawing the line? Like if it's directly impacting the immune system, not indirectly, but directly? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, I think that's how I look at it. Yeah, because there's a lot of synthetic stuff we put in our bodies, but but I our mean, medicine's good inject. at the end of the day. Like lisinopril, I'm glad I have it. Right. <laughs> no, no. Listen, there's a lot of synthetic things we put in our bodies, but I think if you're going towards a technology of putting that thing every three months, uh, I don't know. This is a new technology still, right? But I think, you know, even with monoclonal antibodies, you know, have we reached a cure? You know, we haven't reached a cure. We're giving uh, these monoclonal antibodies for different diseases. And we have all kinds them. of stuff from derm to cancer to psych to everything. GI, I'm sure GI has it. And you, you and I talked about it. You know, um, we've gone from antibiotics for everything to biologics for everything. The future is in the microbiome. So it's going to be. Trust me from the trust me on this. In ten years, it's going to be microbiome for everything. So that's that's <laughs> just the way you know human behavior copies, right? They follow the path. Like they for every, you time. think you think like LDL lowering that you think a solution for that's microbiome. Do you think like yeah? I think it stuff? probably could be. Yeah, I think that could be. But I think more importantly than looking at you know, solutions with microbes is really starting to understand our own bodies. We have in our bodies mechanisms to heal, mechanism, and we need to enhance that mechanism, right? How do we increase our immunity from using what's already in our bodies, right? Creating a fermentation, uh, creating fermentation in your colon, for example, you're, you're boosting your good bacteria, so I think, you know, the, the future is going to have to be in, uh, in looking at what is it in our bodies that we can use to heal ourselves. And we've certainly seen that with platelets, rich plasma. We're seeing that with stem cells, exosomes. Uh, you know, I think those are, in my opinion, that's the future. I think the future is starting to look into our bodies to enhance. Think about, you know, what they're doing right now with like, you know, improving the minds and st and increasing the capacity of the minds, right? Yeah. We need to tap into that to improve not only the mind, but to improve the gut so that there's a gut-brain connection. So personalized and medicine, basically. It, it's it's going to have to be a future of personalized medicine with regulatory agencies overlooking probably, but they need to make it a little bit faster so it's not as expensive because the average person who wants to do a clinical trial to investigate if fecal transplant works for their Parkinson's is not going to have the money to spend on a protocol to write the protocol and to submit it to regulatory. Like I said before, you know, just to, to start that ball rolling, we're talking 300,000 and there's no guarantee it's going to go to, to market. So not too many people have, that ability to do that research. So we need to speak to 
speed it up a lot, the same way they did with, you know, advancing these mRNA vaccines to market, they need to speed up the process where, you know, physicians want to do individual INDs for their patients. Yeah. That the agencies is involved in regulating it and they see the data firsthand, but at, at the same time, the patient is not, you know, short of $300,000, right? That's my opinion. But the, the days of the independent physician are kind of on their last leg. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, um, there's not that many physicians that are going to wake up and want to write a protocol for nothing, right? So, so then the question is, who's going to invest in these personalized medicines? It's going to be large hospital systems, you know, Kaiser, maybe, UC maybe. San Diego. Or somebody that wants to be a hero and wants <laughs> to save the world. Heroes so, exist. Heroes I mean, exist. they're already, like, what do you think about AI? Because AI... You know, they figured out how proteins fold. So now they're figuring out, okay, from all the like 10 to the power of 80 small molecules that we don't know yet, but we know exist, which ones are similar to the ones we already know and where those bind, what these are going to bind to. What about microbiome? Because I feel like microbiome is a perfect place for AI to like let loose. Not yet, because the problem, yes, there is a role with AI. But I think the the priority is 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 taking that history from the patient first and playing the detective. I think once we have that initial, you know, history taking with all the key points that we need, then you can transfer that to an AI. Yes. All right, because there's what, like billions or trillions of, of bacteria in our trillions. And it's not only that, it's also you know, the diversity in the human being to be able to differentiate them, you know, so when you see a bacteria, a microbe, um, you know, think about when I did that study of COVID looking at the severity versus the highly exposed, I zoned in only on bifidobacteria and fast. Well, I zoned in, I looked at all of them and we saw a lot of other microbes that are possibly protective, but we focused on bifido and facilobacterium in the title and in the presentation because bifidobacteria is a trillion dollar industry of probiotics. So to me, there's got to be some value to that if there's a trillion industry of probiotics. Uh, and in fact, we were, I was right. You know, bifidobacteria was absent in severe patients and was, you know, high in people that were exposed to high risk patients, exposed to high risk, but never got COVID. Um, you know, I think that's... Uh, that in order for that study to happen, it really took a physician taking the history and going back and making sure the similarities were within the, you know, you, you know, you had similarities within patients. So to look at that. So I think the microbiome is still far uh, from becoming a thing, in my opinion. That's why it's like the universe. I mean, more or less. Yeah, I mean, it's the microbiome. Everything affects your microbiome, right? So it's removing the the factors that affect your microbiome from foods, probiotics, medications, removing that from the equation and and putting a whole, you know, um, a whole cohort of people that are kind of like almost identical, but not identical. So I have my own methods to kind of like, you know, do the detective work and the forensic medicine. Um but that's what it takes first. It takes that forensic medicine of interviewing the patient, play, looking at all the clues, playing detective, zoning in on, on what's the right, um, the right way. And then from there, um, the, the discovery. And from there, you could use AI to you know, produce 
bigger yeah. level once you've got that formula. Did they ever figure out? Well, sorry for everyone. We're like nerding. I'm nerding out a little, but bifidobacteria, like, does it involve it? Is it like a precursor to the signaling pathway to somehow block ACE2 receptor? Or, like, what? What's the That's, so? So your dad is the best person. To I need to ask him. <laughs> you should probably have him. On I don't think. Podcast. I don't think he knows. He I don't think anyone. Knows. No, it's all hypothesis, right? So, yeah. you know, how can like, you measure that stuff? Like, how do yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can measure. We we measured. So essentially, you know, I think the bifidobacteria really works on the cytokines at de decreasing the cytokines, um, but on a on a. Oh, okay. So on after a microbiome, the you know, if you look at it like simplistically, because for your audience, you know, it's good bugs and bad bugs fighting, right? So you've got a bad bug that's COVID, which is like, you know, one twentieth of the size of bifidobacteria. And you've got a big guy bifidobacteria there. You know, bifidobacteria is going to, you know, you could have like a thousand COVIDs that are tiny. One bifidobacteria is going to take it over is, is much bigger. It takes the space in the colon. So to me, the stronger your bowel move, the stronger your bowel movement, your your microbiome is with these microbes. You got a strong uh, bowel movement too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the stronger you are at surviving, in my opinion, that was my hypothesis from the beginning, but it's coming to fruition, you know. So I see. You know, like everything. I see. So I think the microbiome, the, the role of the microbiome in the future is to validate medications. So in other words, what is what is the microbiome doing when you take a monoclonal antibody, right? Maybe yeah. it's increasing the bifido, maybe it's decreasing. Yeah. What is a um, what is the microbiome doing when you take aspirin? What is it doing when you take prednisone? What is it doing when you take doxycycline? When you take ivermectin? When you take vitamin C? We've shown vitamin C increases the bifidobacteria. So I think that's going to be the role of the microbiome in the future to but help pharma. But don't Better you think the product. risk rewards though? Because there's a potential risk too. Like pharma, I mean, you can't stop progress. Ultimately, right. progress wins. But in the short term, like we got to know that a lot of these things we take can't be good long term. We just don't know. We just have like intuition. Like something doesn't make sense about me taking this for the rest of my life. But I'm going to die and then it won't matter. But if you can like measure, okay, well, long term use of this on your microbiome has negative outcome. Therefore, like the sponsor, do you think they see like the risk reward? They need to start getting, they need to start testing their products on the microbiome. I'll yeah, tell but you what's why. their incentive though. Like what, why would they do? Well, that? their incentive is they, they're going to start being the leaders and recognizing that and coming up front with mm -hmm. honesty to say, Hey, our product is affecting the microbiome, but we are working to fix the microbiome. So this way, we are not trashing, you know, the, the technology or the development or the science. We are adding to it, right, by coming together. So I think that's, they would lead, in my opinion, because they would come, first of all, they would be honest um, in, in their product, right? Hey, our product did this. So, for example, let's take the vaccine, okay? okay. There's a narrative that basically says safe and effective right? So safe and effective, but here I'm showing that there could be some problems in the future in the microbiome. That, if, if, they, if the companies took that seriously, 
and said, you know, we are concerned. Instead of gaslighting all the people that are suffering, right? Because there's a gaslighting that is creating a healthcare revolution. Instead of gaslighting them and saying, oh, you're crazy, stop calling people crazy and say, okay, let me listen to you and let me see how I can fix you. When people, are, when people are psychotic and come to my office, right, they have a psychosis. I don't go, oh, my God, you have a psychosis. You're crazy. I can't help you. I, as a physician, say, I'm so sorry. I hear you. Let me try to find some way to help you because I believe you as the patient, right? There is no gaslighting. That's our role as a physician is to basically understand. So I think if they came forward and said, look, we understand that there's a a percentage of you guys that feel that it's from your vaccine, we will investigate and we will try to see what's going on. You know, like I've shown data, you know, I'm waiting for the Pfizer to call me and say, Dr. He said, what did you see? How can we change this? Think about antibiotics in the past, right? <laughs> they have no incentive though. <laughs> they have I mean... incentive. You know what the incentive is? The public, the doctors, mm. trust. Because the problem is this. They've lost a lot, right? They've lost the they've trust. Lost? They've lost the doctors. They still need doctors to write their drugs. You know, doctors are like going the opposite path now. They're trying to help their patients. Doctors are becoming, which should have happened to begin with, you know, the coaches for their patients. Lose weight. Stop with the pills. Lose weight. Right? Exercise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what patients come to the doctor to be told how to be better. Right? So I think doctors are starting to get on that path of, and, and functional medicine is definitely, you know, picking up, you see it. So because so of that, this Pfizer, let's say the vaccine, not to pick on any of them, but like the MRNA, let's go with MRNA with MRNA. Um, I mean, they want you to get boosters, what, every six months or so. I get the financial incentives. Like if you show me the incentives, I'll, I'll show you what the business plan is. That's obvious. But what you're saying and many others are saying is the MRNA doesn't actually leave. It goes, hides in the gut or is it the spike protein that goes in, hides in the gut? I think or the you... spike protein still stays. I think it still stays. You know, but the MRNA, what happens to it? Like it disintegrates or what? Like it, the body gets rid of I it? I mean, you know, that's what they they say, but is that the truth? Is that what really happens, right? I mean, you, you know, why is persistent damage to the microbiome occurring occurred in those four patients? And I realize, you know, these four patients are a small segment, a small cohort. However, you know, you have to pay attention, right? I mean, you know, if it's four out of four, and they have persistent damage to their bifidobacteria, and now the bifidobacteria is zero, you have to pay attention to that. So are we creating a society where we're killing the good microbe to make people dependent on vaccination because they've lost uh. their microbiome? Yes, possibly. That's how drugs, that's how you become dependent on the drug, and then you cannot get rid of the drug. That's basically <laughs> the same thing we've seen with narcotics, right? Maybe that's so a pleasant side effect for... <laughs> Some far. Well, but the thing is, like, okay, antibiotics. Okay, think about antibiotics. Antibiotics have, um, you know, forever we knew we discovered that it kills the microbiome, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then what happened is people stepped in and said probiotics are the solution, right? So now when a doctor gives antibiotics, he thinks about telling his patient about gut health to mitigate that that 
long-term problem, right? So that's, again, that's where pharmaceutical companies need to look at the microbiome to anticipate the problems so that they can fix it, you know, in the future. And then they will gain the trust back of humanity. Right now, there's a mistrust. I don't trust. I'm, well, I don't trust, you know? Yeah. And it's a shame because the people that were behind technology were behind science and medicine that I respected, right? Um, I, I, I don't trust them anymore, right? You look at someone like Gates, who, you know, these computers and everything, his involvement in research, I don't trust him. He needs to gain my trust again that he's a good person. And I'm, and I'm not the only person that looks at that, you know? So I think there's a lot of people that don't trust. And, and when you don't trust, you can't sell anything to people right. because people take it on themselves to say, you know what? I'm going to fix myself. I can't trust the agencies. I can't trust the doctors. I can't trust this. You know, we got to bring trust back. We got to bring, bring trust back in the agencies. The agencies were created to safeguard the public, right? That's it. The Hamid asked a question. Do you have a hypothesis about not letting the microbiome change their anatomical, pharmacological structure in tough circumstances? Uh, it's still in development. Good Everything question. in this is still in development. I mean, well, I'm never going to put myself in a rabbit hole and say, no, this. I know, I know. This is and, in development. I mean, the microbiome, like people, uh, I think we forget this is not like a receptor or signaling protein. This is like a live thing, live organism. It's organic. live. It's live microbes. They have a li They have a. You know, they have energy on their own, and they all have a purpose. And yeah, the symbiosis of those microbes create a healthy human or a dysfunctional human. So, so we're going to start showing data, by the way, and your dad's involved on uh, depression and anxiety being a microbiome problem. He loves that. You know, there's and there's schizophrenia. So much, there's so much um, like omics, right? There's, you can mm -hmm. put this in omics. I don't know if it already is part of omics or officially, but, you know, right now we have a study for uh, a CNS disorder. They're giving people a device to read brainwaves and they could weed out people before they start the drug, based on our algorithm and our AI, they say that you're probably, you're not likely to be a responder to this drug, so your screen fell. I see something like this potentially for a microbiome. We're just like far, far further away yeah. than we are. But like as a diagnostic tool or like maybe a, like a pre-treatment diagnostic tool for what's most likely to work for someone. It's just so much more complicated because there's what trillions of them and millions of different kinds. Well, I mean, and the other thing is the challenges of reaching the area where it needs to reach mm -hmm. in the bowels. So a pill solution, you know, may not be the answer in my opinion. So yeah, we it's such a vast, but you know, I stopped like hypo I stopped like sending out these hypotheses because you know, I don't want you thinking I'm crazy, Dan. Well, I mean, you've proven to be right. You know, the longer it goes, the more right you've been, you've become. Yes. It just takes more time to yes. get to that point. But yeah, amazing. Everybody go follow Dr. Hazen. Her Twitter is underneath um, the video and in the podcast. And then uh, Robert Goldman as well. His LinkedIn is underneath. So thank you very much, Dr. Hazen. We'll thank keep you. doing studies. Um, 
I'll put you in touch with Robert Goldman. Maybe you'll Perfect. get his study. My site's doing one of his studies. They're pretty easy. And the drug's actually pretty good. too. By the way, show your book so that I know. Oh, that yeah. I had yours here, too. I'm actually writing. Yeah, my yeah, yeah. But the Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research is excellent for people Thank that want to understand about cost in research, how to run a clinical trial. This I highly recommend it. So thank you, thank you. Um, yours as well. Let's talk shit. It's actually yes. I'm writing a book. I got to tell you about it, but yours is going to be referenced a lot in there. Oh, good, good. I'm writing yes. the Let's Talk Shit too soon. Oh, it's awesome. coming out. I can't wait. Although can't I wait. think I'm going to call it Let's Talk Microbiome this time. Why you're getting more? You're getting more PC. I don't know. We'll see. As soon as you cross 100K on Twitter, you got to like change up your style a little. Or you'll always be the same. Yeah, I'll always be the same. I'll be the <laughs> rebel. I'm like, listen, a scientist is a rebel. If you're not a rebel, you're not doing good research. Yeah, I mean, the scientists throughout history have been killed for thinking otherwise until they're proven right later. So, Well, hopefully I'm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am. <laughs> I, I, these, days, yeah. these days killed is... Uh, is uh no more twitter access or no more yeah. <laughs> no more linkedin prison. access yeah You're in prison. prison on twitter all right dan <laughs> good talking thank to you, you. thank bye. you dr hazen bye-bye and thank you everybody for watching listening um i think i got through most of the comments but it's been it was a lot longer than i thought but it was good because anytime you have even just one of these two guests we could go hours with either one, but when you have both of them on and we have questions, it's hard to keep everything going. But at the end there, I asked Dr. Hazen some science questions I'm interested in, but if you guys are good, like subscribe, comment, share any more questions, let me know. Um, you could reach me anywhere, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, you could text me 949-415-656. I really prefer LinkedIn. Um, so my name, Dan Sfera. But thank you, everybody. Catch you all later. Have a good one. Bye-bye.